Good morning, friends. Um, welcome to Snowy Branson. Looks like things are going to be kind of shut down and slow on this Sunday. But we're going to continue our series uh, from Philippians. Today we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, and I've titled this The Secret of Success. So let me ask, what are the universal qualities of highly successful people? Well, all successful people have a pretty clear purpose in life. They have a compelling reason to get out of bed in the morning, and that driving purpose keeps them on track and makes them ultimately successful. And without a clear purpose, no one can be considered successful no matter how much worldly fame he or she may achieve. By that standard, I suppose that Paul might be considered the most successful person who ever lived outside of Jesus. He had a purpose so clear, so definite, so profound that it permeated everything he said and did and gave him hope in the darkest moments of life. And our text for today might be called Paul's Secret of Success or Paul's Purpose in Life because it reveals the driving sense of value that kept him on course, even in a Roman jail. If you want Paul's Secret of Success in just one sentence, here it is from Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, many of us learned this verse as children in Sunday school. We've heard it, recited it, memorized it. This verse reveals why Paul did what he did, why he said what he said, and how he found the strength to endure incredible hardship. Now, before going on, let's just take a little quiz. I mean, how would you complete the following sentence? For me to live is. Well, what word or phrase would you put in the blank? And don't miss the point here. I mean, no one leaves that sentence blank. Everyone finishes it with something. If you don't fill the blank with Jesus, what do you put there? In this world, there are winners and losers. After all, that's why we tend to keep score. A winner is a person with a positive, noble philosophy of life. A loser is a person with an unworthy purpose or no purpose at all. So which are you, a winner or a loser? Philippians 1, 19-26 contains a winner's philosophy of life. It, it's re- pretty remarkable because it was written by a man in a Roman jail, chained to a soldier 24 hours a day. He's on trial for his life with no certainty <clears throat> that he'll ever be set free. As we go through this passage together, I challenge you to compare your philosophy of life with Paul's. So let's see how they stack up together. First of all, let's look at Paul's confidence. This is in verses 18-20. to 20. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now when I, <clears throat> I read those words, one question comes to mind. How could Paul be so happy? After all, he's in jail in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. He didn't know what was going to happen next, yet he says, I will continue to rejoice. Perhaps you read these verses and you think that the phrase, my deliverance, means that he expected to be released. But I'm not sure that's what he means. He's not thinking about getting out of jail, but about God vindicating him, whether in chains or as a free man. The Living Bible offers this kind of helpful paraphrase. This is all going to turn out for my good. Paul really says that he's depending on two things, the prayers of his friends and the work of the Holy Spirit on his behalf. And from verse 20, we learn the content of his prayers, that he might never do anything that would bring him shame, 
that he might never lose his courage and that he might always magnify Christ Jesus. Now, note the last phrase. He said, whether by life or by death. I mean, here's the key to his amazing success. He wasn't afraid to die. Could you say the same thing? I mean, so many of us worry about the future and about what might happen to us in some accident or through cancer or some other dreaded disease. And of all the fears that grip the heart, perhaps none is greater than the fear of death. Yet somehow Paul has completely delivered uh, was, has been completely delivered from inner dread over what might happen tomorrow. He's come to the place where he can say, the only thing that matters is that Christ be magnified in my life, and it doesn't matter whether I live or die as long as Christ is magnified. I mean, consider the positive results of losing your fear of death. When you can say, I'm not afraid to die, you're free to focus on the things that really matter. You're indifferent to your own personal fate, and you're utterly consumed with doing God's will. What if you recognize any of these names? Nate Saint, Roger Yodirian, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Jim Elliott. Now, some of you know the story that way back in 1955, these five young men gathered in Ecuador with the vision of reaching a tribe of Indians called the Akas. And that word means savage. It's a name given to them by other tribes who live deep in the rainforest. I mean, no one had ever presented the gospel to them. But these five missionaries, all highly trained, deeply devoted to Jesus, began praying about ways to make contact. In September, they began flying over an Aka village, lowering a pot containing gifts for the Indians. Eventually, the Aka's took the gifts and replaced them with simple gifts of their own. In January 1956, these five men decided the time had come to make contact in person. And after much prayer, they established a base camp, on a sandy beach of the Karari River. On January 8, 1956, at about 3.30 p.m., they were speared to death by the Indians, who mistakenly thought that they had come to hurt them. This news shocked the world. I mean, many people wondered how young men with so much promise could waste their lives that way. Now, when the journals of Jim Elliot were published several years later, they were found to contain this sentence. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Paul would agree. Once you decide that your life won't last forever, you're free to invest it in a cause greater than yourself. You give up what you can't keep so that in the end you gain what you can never lose. This is what Paul meant when he said, whether by life or death. A second, consider Paul's confession. Verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is Paul's personal mission statement. I mean, you get this and you'll understand how Paul could turn the world upside down wherever he went. This is really a definition of what a Christian is. A Christian understands that Christ is his life and that dying is his gain. I mean, consider the phrase, to live is Christ. I mean, what does it mean? I mean, think of the prepositions that express relationship. We live in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, through Christ, and from Christ. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of life. He is truly the Alpha and the Omega, the A and Z and every letter in between. So here are three statements to ponder. Christ is life. Christ transforms life. Christ transcends life. How did Paul survive and thrive in a Roman jail? Well, Philippians 1.21 gives Paul's answer. Life is wonderful 
and it's only going to get better. See, the word gain is a monetary term, and it means to make a profit on an investment. Instead of complaining about being in jail, he rejoices that even in chains, he's experienced the power of Jesus in his life. And when he dies, his current wonderful life will get even even better. Now, how could Paul say such things? Well, it's because for Paul, death didn't put him in a cemetery. It ushered him into a sanctuary. He knew that he would enter the presence of Christ at death, and that would truly be gain for him. And many who read Philippians 1 wonder how death can be a gain for anyone. Now, let me just suggest three reasons why. One, we lose everything we don't need. We lose the world, the flesh, and the devil. We lose our trials, our troubles, our tears, our fears, our weaknesses. Second, we keep everything that matters. We keep our personality, our identity, and our knowledge of all that is good. And third, we gain what we never had before. We gain heaven, we gain the saints, the angels, the presence of God, and Jesus himself. Now, although I've never seen it, I've been told that there's a headstone in a cemetery in Montgomery, Alabama, which reads, Under the clover and under the trees, here lies the body of Jonathan Pease. Pease ain't here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. Now, as I was preparing this message, I ran across the most encouraging thought. It's this, a Christian is immortal until his work on earth is done. I mean, think about that for a moment. You see, death cannot touch you until God is through with you. You cannot die, and you will not die until the appointed time comes that God has ordained. And if God is God, you will live as long as the Lord intends, and then you will go home to heaven. In that sense, every Christian life is always complete. I know that it doesn't always look that way when we stand by the grave of a young person who died before reaching the prime of life. And truly, the death of the young brings many questions that only God can answer. But this is much as true. If a young person dies in the faith, that young person has completed the life God intended for him. What seems to be a mistake to us is no mistake in God's divine plan. When Pilate saw that Jesus would not answer him, he said, Don't you know I have the power to put you to death? To which Jesus said, You have no power except that which is given to you by God. A few hours later, Jesus cried out, It is finished. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished, meaning that he had completed the work God had given him to do. He knew that he could not die and would not die before God's appointed time. In the same way, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I finished the race. He knew that his death, the time and place and the circumstances of it were in God's hands. Now, a few years ago, one of our pastors in India relayed that he had been sent a message by some Hindu radicals to stop preaching or they'd kill him. And he responded by saying, you can't threaten me with heaven. Let me make two applications based on Philippians 1.21. First, there's no such thing as an untimely death for a child of God. It may seem that way, especially in the death of the young, but that is only because we cannot see things from God's point of view. Second, our only task in life is to do God's will until the moment God calls us to heaven. Since we can't know the future, it's useless to waste our days worrying about when or how or where we'll die. Best to leave that in God's hand and to spend our energies in the cause of Christ and in the doing of God's will day by day. Well, let's look now at Paul's conflict in verses 22 and 23. If I'm going... If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. 
I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now, some people want to die because they hate this life. Paul was ready and willing to die because he looked forward to the life with Jesus in heaven. For him, death would be like a ship pulling up anchor and sailing out of the harbor towards a new destination. Be kind of like the army breaking camp, striking the tents, moving to a new location. Paul understood that for the Christian, death is nothing more than a change of address. In the meantime, he's willing to remain if he could make a difference in the lives of other people. Someone has said that the best use for your life is to invest it in something that will outlast it. Too many people invest their time and energy in things that won't last two weeks or two years, much less outlast their earthly life. Remember, friends, that only two things will last forever. The word of God and people, everything else vanishes away. If you want your life to count, build it around those two things. Fourth, here's Paul's conviction in verses 24 to 26. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. You see, in the end, Paul concluded that he wouldn't die just yet, but would be spared so that he could minister to the Philippians. Even though he preferred to die so that he could be with Jesus, he put aside his own preference for the good of others. So here are three positive benefits that would accrue to Paul by postponing his own death. One, he would experience Christ in his life. Two, he would have fruitful labor to perform. And three, he could help the Philippians to grow spiritually. Paul is saying, I can't lose either way. If I die, gain for me. If I live, gain for you. Well, how do you stop a man like that? Well, you can't. Go ahead and kill him. He'll die with a smile on his face. Put him in prison. He'll preach to the guards. Put him in jail at midnight and he'll start singing Amazing Grace. Run him out of town. Well, he'll just go down the road and start a church in the next village. Stone him and he uses the rocks to build a sanctuary. And that brings us back to the five young men who gave their lives reaching the Aka Indians in 1956. At the time, it seemed to be a tragedy with no redeeming purpose. Now, what's happened as a result? But with a few years, over a thousand new missionaries went to the field as a result of their martyrdom. Soon, the Indian Bible schools in Ecuador were filled to overflowing with native believers desiring to learn God's word. Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot, the widows of Nate Saint and Jimmy Elliot, moved into an Aka village to begin the process of Bible translation. Nine years later, two of the Akas who helped kill the five missionaries had come to Christ and baptized uh, Kathy and Steve Saint, daughters of the son of Nate Saint. A flourishing church was established among the Aukas and other neighboring tribes. And in 1995, Steve Saint moved back among the Aukas to live at their request. Truly, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. I mean, those men had no idea of the thousands of lives they would reach or would touch by their death on a sandy beach in a remote jungle. They only knew that God had called them to the AUKUS and they must obey. Now let's suppose that we could speak to these five men today and ask them, was it worth it? What do you think they'd say? I think I know the answer. It's the same as the answer given uh, by Paul. Our only desire is to magnify Christ and to reach the world for him. Whether we do that by life or by death makes no difference to us. Friends, what will death be like for you? You can never say to die is gain, 
unless you can also say, for to me, to live is Christ. If you cannot say to live is Christ, how can you be sure that to die is gain? You see, we always come back to Jesus, don't we? If you're afraid to die, perhaps it's because you don't know Jesus. When all is said and done, there are really only two philosophies in life. You can say with Paul, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or you can say with the world, to me to live is self and to die is loss. Which will it be for you? Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.